So welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolo. And we're coming to you from the ether. Uh, how are you doing, Sock? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Hanging in there. How about yourself? Good. I've, I've kind of like, uh, you know, I mean, I'm lucky because I have a kind of a big spread and I've been playing with the goats and doing stuff like that. But I actually gotten out of town with Eric a couple of times, went up to Saugerties and Woodstock area, socially distancing and being careful, but saw my sisters and beautiful up there. Love that. Yeah. And, and when you travel in this moment in time, uh, What's your sense of like a different part of New York? What's it like up there with regards to the shutdown and everything? In New York City, of course, during this time of pandemic, first of all, it, as everyone says, the 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 best word is eerie. It's eerie because there there's like no traffic. There are empty streets. The people who are walking around have masks on. Uh, but but if if you showed that to me as some kind of like post dystopian film, like maybe ten years ago, I'd be like. Oh, yeah, I, I can see that that's a thing. I would believe. Yeah. You know what? I, I had a, in the last month, I had to drive into the city twice and uh, did a quick turnaround, drove and came back within an hour of, of landing. And I will say, and I'm, I'm not trying to be uh, cheeky or whatever, it was like a wet dream <laughs> to drive in and out of the city when it shut down. Because it was like you zip through, you zip up, and I know it's horrible and I know. Like I shouldn't be making light of it, but that was, that was pretty, it was like, I couldn't imagine people after like, I was like, I hope this is, I hope, I hope I can do that again. You know? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny cause you know, Eric moves artwork, my husband, and he's been like, I've never seen him so happy. He kind of, he, sometimes, you know, things that would take him 10 hours are taking him like four. You know, I mean, yeah. he's considered somewhat of an essential worker since he moves people. Then he's a one man show, but it's just been so easy. And of course, he's taking all the proper precautions. But that kind of brings us to the the guest we're going to have on today. Um, we've invited Tom McMorrow, also known as T.E. McMorrow, uh, on our show. He's going to join us in a few minutes. Tom has been out here for a long time as a reporter and um, his specialty lately has been two uh, diverse, but yet very similar subjects, which is he has been writing a um, really in-depth series on the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and making the comparisons to our present day pandemic. And he's also hugely involved, I would say a supporter and like emotionally involved in some ways with the census. He was a census taker during the last um, census and he, he's a, kind of a, an expert on the census. And of course, put a pandemic and a census together, you know, that spells trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also uh, Tom comes from a journalistic background. I, I know we want to talk to him about that. And he's also a children's book author. So we're going to talk a little bit about his journey. Yeah, man, we're many hats, and that sound like they're all very uh, topical and important, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, I, I also just think, I mean, as we as we say hi to the hour, everybody, welcome that is joining us. It is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, I hope everybody, uh, you know, uh, has a a safe and fun weekend um, and safe and fun uh, early summer because. Uh, it's one of the things I know I have felt um, just internally is in, as the weather's warmed up just a little bit, you start to feel spring and summer a little bit. You know, you want to be out, you want to enjoy uh, this, this very beautiful part of the world. And uh, it, it kind of um, 
belies the uh, severity of this moment in history. So uh, I, I try to live in the moment as much as I can anyway, but especially appreciate the sky, appreciate the warmth, appreciate uh, the, the airiness, and, and just know that it's, it's something that uh, we should never take for granted. Beautifully put. Well, we're going to take a little break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we'll be right back after this. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Sundays on the East End. This is Alex Sokolow with... Bridget Leroy. And we are joined by uh, Tom McMorrow, uh, a, a Montaukian, uh, <laughs> the East Ender. Uh, Bridget has given his bona fides, but a journalist, a census taker, and a children's author. Let's jump in on the census before we get into the pandemic, because that, that obviously uh, will be hard to talk about anything else once we start. Uh, What's your connection to the census? Why why have you devoted time and energy to the census? Okay, so um, it's great to be on with you guys. Hi. 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 <laughs> I was an actor back in 1980 in Manhattan, and um, the census came along. And it's a perfect job for an actor, for a writer, for an artist in Manhattan. It's just, it's a wonderful job. You just go out and you knock on doors and what could be better? You meet people. And, uh, and it was a very, very different world back then, uh, Manhattan. So I was a census taker in 1980. All right. So, so, so you basically, you just wanted to get out, knock on some doors and, uh, just ask people, get paid and ask people about their lives and get, get paid. paid. Yeah. Okay. And get paid. It was it was so cool and and the and the cool I was really good at it. I like talking to people. I mean, I've seen the census online. Is it the same questions? Is just basic information? It's essentially yes. I would say that I would say that it's not changed except the one big difference now between now and then is back then they used to do one out of every six census forms was called a long form. The long form the Census Bureau has. The Census Bureau is, um, is, is completing uh, something that's required by the Constitution, which is that every 10 years, we have to count all the people. And I, I want to stress one thing. It's not all the citizens. It's all the people, everyone. If you live here, and, and, it's, and it's important also to, to, I mean, you have to think back to, back to, um, uh, back to when they wrote the Constitution. I mean, immigrants were so important back then. It wasn't a matter of or, or, or have you have you become a citizen. It was it was the fact that these people were coming in and we needed them. Yeah, and well, but, but you know what's really funny though, and, and and it does kind of intersect with COVID. I think on some spiritual level, is the more information, um, you know, a, a government by the people for the people, uh, or for the people by the people, um, the more information that we have about where people are, the more resources can go, the more the country can actually run, uh, you know, uh, better. Yes. Exactly. But I think that's the point. And, and just to interject, and Tom knows this, um, but I was a census taker during the last census in 2010. And um, 
you know, it's different now. Uh, what you were just saying about how we we championed our immigrants, we loved our immigrants when the, you know at the turn of the last century and everything, and now. You know, with the current climate being what it is, but even before that, there was a lot of fear involved. There were lots of, you know, shut, you know, I could hear noise inside, but people weren't answering their door. And there was a lot, you know, in those areas out here on the East End that are more kind of immigrant heavy, um, that there was, I didn't get the kind of numbers that, which is a pity because like you said, Alec, it means that more resources get directed to an area, you know, but anyway, I'm sorry, Tom, I didn't mean to interrupt. Please continue. No, not at all. Not at all. Because what you're saying is very important. My journey through the census, uh, 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 you know, working with the Census Bureau. So I did 1980. I did, I was it 90 or 2000. I did 2000 again. Uh, It was either 90 or 2000. I'm not sure which one. I think it was 2000. Uh, and so now I'd, I'd worked on these two, and I, and I was very good at it. I was really mm-hmm. good at it because I like people. And, and how, does one de- how does one define being good at taking a census? Getting people to do it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> okay. that's, that's really it. <laughs> Got to read the fine print there. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I learned right away was that the Census Bureau has, and I, th- I think they've improved. I, I did a fascinating interview with the. Um, with the regional director uh, uh, a week ago and, and learned a lot about what's going on now and, and what their approach is. And I, I do think they've improved this, but it, it is in, they have these classes. These, they used to have, apparently this has changed, but they used to have these classes that would last five days where the census taker would sit there. And the way that, that, that the lessons were structured was essentially like a cookie-cutter approach. The whole nation gets the same lesson. Well, you know, a Manhattan is sitting in Manhattan, which is where I was, uh, and, and hearing about um, uh, how to uh, uh, take a census at a carnival is not, you know, it's just, it, it doesn't work. So the one thing I learned right away in 1980, uh, you remember I mentioned that long form, short form. So the short form is what you get now. That's uh, the long form is another story. It's a nightmare, and uh, we can get into that. But the short form basically is your basic questions, and the Census Bureau gave you a script, and the script was uh, excuse. It will only take ten minutes of your time. Well, in Manhattan, you do not say that to anyone. You do not tell anyone right. it's going to take ten minutes. It's one minute. I can do it in one minute, <laughs> and I could. It's like you just get the information. You don't worry about making a nice, neat form. You get all the information. You walk away, and then you do the form. You know, I wanted to ask you, uh, because obviously uh, I'm somewhat of an amateur genealogist. And of course, you know, that's thank God for the census, because I would never be able to trace my the Jewish side of my family and the Italian side of my family. Right. And, but what's amazing, you're saying you could do it in one minute. I, I bet they had to say it back then because I can find my family name spelt like four different ways. You know, it's, it's it's really hard to kind of get it all together. Like, is it, you know, Levy or is it Levi or is it right. you know, all that different stuff? So it's really interesting, but thank God for the census takers. I also wonder if like just in the flow of, I'm, I'm going to pop into this idea though, it's like where we are now and the census that, uh, and then the, you know, how it's been politicized by, by Trump and his folks. Um, is I wonder also though if people, because of the internet in the last 10 years, 20 years, for the last 10 years, that we're all a little bit more suspect of, of sharing information. And that it, you know, and that it's, it becomes kind of harder to be open 
about stuff like that. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you, I mean, going back to, so I've, I've done, I, I did those two census, uh, census is, uh, I did those two censuses, uh, and, and I worked in both, uh, extensive periods of time. And so when it came time for the 2010, uh, this is actually in 2009, uh, I applied, and this time my goal was to uh, do, go into management. Become a sensei. A sensei. A sensei of the census. I am the sensei. Were you already out here? Were you on the East End by that point? No. Uh, the first thing I did in 2009, I did an operation which is called Address Canvassing in Manhattan. And um, in that operation, uh, uh, I was in Manhattan. And then I moved into uh, a, a part of the a census, uh, which is called partnership. Uh, they have, they still have that. It's a very important part where you do outreach to communities. So, for example, I would go from Manhattan, I'd pick up materials and drive out. It was very convenient because, you know, we, my wife and I had an apartment in, in Montauk. So uh, I could drive out and go to some place, uh, let's say in Patchogue, and, and, and go to a laundromat where there is a Honduran community. And the Census Bureau is very good at focusing on these very specific, it's not that, it's not a Latino community, it's a Honduran community, or it's a Guatemalan community. And knowing the differences are very important, so that you can do an outreach. And so I used to bring out materials uh, um, like that. Um, and then the following year, in 2010, I um, applied for the position of a field operations supervisor, and I got it. And uh, so that was in Manhattan as well. Um, there, it was, it was really amazing. I had, um, I had the West side going over to sixth Avenue or fifth, I forget which, uh, and up to central park. And I had, so I had this incredible diverse, like some, you know, very rundown hell's kitchen all the way over to the Trump buildings around central park. Which is Hell's living room. <laughs> so, uh, I, had, uh, I had a very diverse, uh, uh, and it was so much fun. I mean, I used to bicycle ride every day to these different uh, crew meetings uh, and, and to talk to the census takers as they were going out and, and help them you know, deal with the problems. Because as you were saying, every census becomes more difficult because people are more suspicious. They are more withdrawn. They are more, uh, has, I mean, look, I, from the beginning, I've, I've known that there are historic resistance against doing the census, the African-American community. There are a lot of people who resent the fact, and rightfully so, that when they wrote the Constitution, it essentially... Um, Protected white um, men. <laughs> Protected, uh, well, protected white people. Well, well, the three, the three fifths. Uh, well, know. that's that's the point. I mean, that that this was written into the Constitution. That this was yeah. written in, and there was a reason because the North, uh, 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 the population of of whites in Pennsylvania and Virginia were roughly the same, but Virginia had many more slaves. So the I mean, Pennsylvania had they were the two largest pop, you know in terms of population. The issue for the framers of the Constitution was okay. Um, uh, how do we count all these people? And it, to the North, it seemed unfair if you're saying that someone is a slave that therefore you get to count them as a person. 
So they reduce. So that's why that's how they come up with that bizarre uh, uh, number, three fifths of a person. Uh, I mean, it's 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 insane. But it, that's the that's where we where we were. Yeah, it's despicable and built into the DNA of our country. Right, and so. it took it, you know, and it took a civil war to explode that, and and after the civil war, that was all changed, and obviously, and now it's every person. Let's jump into today, and you know, your involvement with the census, and you said you just spoke to a high mucky muck. What are I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're going to get to that, but tell me, what are the big challenges? of the census this year and you know how do you get like i would think that the very first thing you have to say is this is going to help you this is going to get you more services that you want like this that, you need to be counted so that they know that this area has you know a hundred thousand more people than they thought and it needs better school right, right? isn't that the idea of a better road yes and and there are but but i i think that when you get to the job of census taker at that point it's too late you need that everything that you just said needs to happen before and there are groups out there like ola there are many groups that are doing that that are, have been reaching out uh and 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 that's good but but COVID nineteen. Basically, the census is really uh, much, uh, much more efficient now. You can do it. It's so easy. You can go online and it really is easy. It's fun. You get it done. But the, the, the issue out here in the East End in particular, and this is really a, a vital issue. Uh, it's something, you know, unfortunately, you have uh, Peter Van Skoyak, you have Jay Schneiderman. These men, uh, uh, you know, they're the supervisors of the town. They're dealing with a million things. A serious life and death issues, food pantries, you know, all that. And so it's hard to focus on something like the census. And yet they know, everyone knows how important this is going forward. Because as we start to rebuild from COVID-19, where, how are they going to decide where the money goes? Well, the numbers are, are key. So, so we need to get everyone counted. But here's the issue on the East End. Um, 95% of America, uh, the Census Bureau communicates with via the mail. Um, they send out, this year, they send out a form. It's not a form. It's a, 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 it's a, a document that says, go to, uh, you know, uh, my census, uh, 20, my2020census.gov, uh, and you can fill out your form. And so all that, so all that worked fine. The mailing went out despite COVID-19. Uh, and and the the response rate is exactly uh, from from my interviews with I, I interviewed uh, Kenneth Pruitt, who was the head of the census under uh, uh, Bill Clinton, um, and other uh, uh, people like that. And the numbers that they hit were fine nationally, sixty percent. It's 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 good. They can you can work from here, maybe. It's a big maybe now, uh, and I'll get to that in a second. But but locally. On the east end, that remember, ninety-five percent are by mail, but five percent of the areas in the country, the Census Bureau has determined they cannot put addresses to the houses by mail because the more a majority of the people in those areas get their mail via post office boxes. Right, because we're in a rural area, exactly. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I have a PO box. I don't get mail in my house. Right, I'm aware. Well, have have you gotten anything from the census yet? I've I've done it online, but you did it yourself. I did it myself online this year. I went online. I was, I was reminded. What happened was, 
the census has so okay so you have the 95 percent are by mail you have this five percent which is about half of us out here half of east hampton roughly and i can tell you the exact neighborhoods amagansett uh, and, uh, uh you can go uh, west to bridgehampton sagaponic wainscott there are all these areas uh hither hills in montauk uh these areas are classified as what is called update leave by the census bureau which is you know inside baseball who cares but the point is is that it is the only way we get contacted by the Census Bureau is by somebody coming to our house because they don't know where to mail it to. So someone comes to the house and leaves a, a kit, uh, the information. Well, that was supposed to start on March 15th. On March 17th, everything was shut down. So half of the addresses, half of the residences out here on the East End have never been contacted and the, and the numbers, the response rate shows it. Yeah. Let's give a shout out then to, I mean, people who are listening to this right now who have not received their census, what can they do? Is that what, what, uh, what's the website they can go to to register themselves? My2020census.gov. If you've never been contacted, most people just need a nudge. But if you don't get the nudge, they don't do it. And that's what's happened here. I mean, most people say, yeah, a majority of people, about 60% of the population, if you say to them, look, you have to do your census here, and they'll say yes, and they'll do it. And that's without a problem. So please, please spread the word, because the more people that do this, the more resources we're going to get. And if we've learned anything from the last three months, uh, you know, the, the truth and statistics really matter in staying ahead of issues. And I can tell you that the numbers are dire. The numbers in East Hampton, we're below 30%. The nation's at 60%. We're below 30 in East Hampton. The numbers are about the same in Southampton. The numbers are about the same in South Hold. Maybe out, maybe out here if we offered like a pint of, of lobster salad, people would do it. That might do the trick. <laughs> but so, so I do encourage everyone, if you haven't done it yet, just go to the website, do the census for your residents. Okay. Well, we're talking to Tom McMorrow, and you're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And uh, we're having this fascinating conversation. I can't wait to come back. We will be back right after this. Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And Tom McMurrow. And Tom McMurrow, yeah, well, yeah, welcome back, Tom, thanks. With uh, T.E. McMurrow, and I believe the E stands for Elizabeth, is that correct? I'm close. No, it's no, Evers. It is Evers, Evers. Uh, it's a German. You choose to go by T.E. McMurrow because your father was also Tom, was he not? Yes, and and his and his father was, and all three of us are writers. And, and they and they were they were also writers and journalists. Yes, yes. Where, where did they uh, work? Where did they practice? Uh, Thomas McMorrow, uh, Thomas James McMorrow, my grandfather. Um, uh, of course, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald was a very prolific writer. Uh, he was a wonderful writer, and, and, and a, a big and a big football fan. Well, there you go. I have a, I have a Jets cap here, so not not too many people know this. No, but not too many. Know, but here's a little F. Scott Fitzgerald trivia. 
he is he is considered to be the person who put the bug in the head of the Princeton football coach on how there should be different players playing offense and defense. Really? Yeah. Great. There you go. Father the father to modern football. Right. No, when he died in L.A., among the items in his room were the Princeton football, uh, you know, yearly guide. He was a huge football fan. No, that's that's a wonderful piece of. Uh, so, um, so, so F. Scott Fitzgerald was this wonderful, brilliant, prolific writer. Now we know also a vision, vision <laughs> yeah. a visionary of football, um, a changed football forever. Uh, but uh, but uh, at the same time that he was, he managed to find time to sell the Saturday Evening Post about 90 to 100 short stories. My grandfather had more short stories published in the Saturday Evening Post under the byline Thomas McMorrow than F. Scott Fitzgerald in the 1920s and 1930s. I have a ton of magazine covers, um, uh, you know, obviously that I've collected just to get, and he was a wonderful writer. And and, and what was was his uh, style? What was his, uh, like... Uh, it's, I, I, I would think that today it'd be a little dated, but he, he, he created characters like he had this character named little Amby and it's, and it's a wonderful character. I've, I, you know, I've actually, is he, was he a rapper? No, <laughs> little Amby was not a rapper. Little Amby was a wonderful sleazy lawyer and, nice. uh, uh, he was a real fixer. And uh, so he uh, he was he was a great character, and, and my my grandfather did a lot of characters like that. But he did a lot with this character, Little Lambie, and he had a couple of other characters that he used too. He had three or four books published. Um, uh, he used a pseudonym under one or two, this, uh, and a couple were under his name, uh, Sandalwood Fan. And I, you know, um, anyway. So he was that's your grandfather. That's my grandfather. Very prolific writer. So. You know, it's funny because you grow up in a family and your father and your grandfather doing something. I was used to my father just typing all day, you know, sitting at his typewriter and typing. Uh, My father uh, went to Choate, because, of course, he had to go to Choate. And um, um, uh, I mean, basically, because my, my grandfather was so successful, I mean, they had a house on Ocean Beach right on the ocean. Uh, you, you know, and so they had a big place in Greenwich, Connecticut. So my father went to Chode, and after that, he went to Yale for a year. But he said, ah, "I don't know Yale. You know, who cares?" And he became a journalist. <laughs> he went to work for the Washington Post, or the Washington, uh, not the Washington Post, the other Washington paper back then. But so he went to work for them, uh, and then World War II, and now he's in World War II, and he comes back, and he became the sports editor for Movie Tone News. So in the late 40s and through the 1950s, he was covering sports in the golden age of New York baseball and sports. And Jackie, he got to know Jackie Robinson and, and, and his wife, Rachel, et cetera. Uh, and, then, and then, of course, the newsreels folded and he went to work for the Daily News. Um, his brother, Fred McMorrow, was an editor with the New York Times. Uh, my father was a journalist with Daily News. So I grew up with this idea of journalism. It was like this great thing. And then I became an actor, you know? So. Yeah, I was going to say, so you're like, how can I disappoint my father? I'll yes. become an actor. There's only one rung below journalist and it's got to be actor. So there you go. <laughs> well, the calling of the board. Yes, well, 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 my mother was an actress. Um, so so okay. there was a, a natural 
So I studied, I did, you know, I went to, I studied with Stella Adler. I studied the Neighborhood Playhouse with Lee Meisner, Sanford Meisner. Sandy Meisner. Yeah, Sandy Meisner. He, he is, was an incredible man. And, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross was written by Mamet. Okay, Mamet, I can tell you, Mamet studied with Meisner. And I don't think, I don't know if Mamet has ever credited Meisner for this, but Mammoth style direct comes directly out of Meisner's moment to moment, what what he called a repetition exercise. So, so he's gone to town. He's gone to town on that for the last fifty years. Absolutely, absolutely. So, were you in anything? Were you in anything we might have seen, Tom? Uh, if you watch <laughs> Dead Man Walking uh, with Sean Penn. I was I was an extra, but I was an extra as one of the guards. So you can see me shove Sean Penn a couple of times. Nice. nice. You might be the only one that he didn't shove back. <laughs> no, listen, Sean Penn. I I admired him uh, on that set. He was great. He said he would say to me, "You'd say shove me." I don't, you know, just I mean, he he wanted a reel. You know, he was not, you know. Yeah, it sounds like sounds like foreplay for him. <laughs> Well, well, then there was one moment where, when he got really ticked off at something, I forget what it was, uh, but he took a chair and he threw it across the room. So that was pretty cool. But um, other than that, I, uh, no, I, I liked Sean Penn. He was, he was very cool. And, and so how, do we, how do we pivot from this wonderful discussion about Sean Penn to talk about like, the Spanish flu? I mean, how, okay. do, we, how do we get there? Okay, well, let's, okay, so let's, let's, follow, let's follow the let's follow. The, 2009, I'm working for the census. I'm also coming out here, as I said. In 2009, I go into the post office. Now, remember, I grew up in journalism, with journalism all around me. It was my uncle, my father, it was everything. So I go into the post office in Montauk, and um, I learn that one of the clerks has to commute from Brooklyn. And I said, why? And another gal had to commute from, like, Harlem. And I said, well, how is that possible? And they said, well, that the, um, the post office, uh, basically, they were, this was a, they had this loophole in their deal with the union that they could take someone and make them work 100 miles away. And they did that to people that they wanted to get rid of. So that was how they did it. And the moment I heard that, I said, "This is a this is that's a long walk. There's a lot of a lot of dogs in between there and here." <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I I I honestly I honestly uh, I, the moment I heard it, I said, "This is a great newspaper story." Yeah, I mean, this needs to be reported. So I called up uh, uh, David Rattray. I called up the Star, and I called up um, um, the Independent, Kitty Merrill, and um, uh, both of them blew me off. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, but but I kept working on it and I kept calling and David finally said, uh, you know, I mean, it was a good story. And it ended up being top of the fold of the star, um, uh, how the post office was. I forget what the term was that they used for, but how they basically were forcing people uh, off the job uh, by by making them commute. So once that happened and then like it was weird. So now I'm working with the census. I'm a supervisor. And then. Things kept happening out of Montauk that because of where I was at the time, we were in ditch, we were renting a, a place in ditch uh, until the owner figured out how much they could get by selling it. Uh, and um, uh, there were a couple of crashes at the airport. So in both cases, I went up and I covered it as a reporter for the for the star. You were still, you were still stringing, though. You were a freelancer. 
Yes, I was freelancing. And 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 as I said, I mean, you know, I, I have to hand, you know, credit David because he did say initially, look, we don't know freelancers, but you know, he did see the the importance of the story and he did he did take it, you know. Right. So I covered these a couple of these plane crashes and then now the census is over and it's 2011 and all of a sudden there's an ad for a job of reporter at the Star. So I applied for the job and uh here we are. I answered the same ad, and we both started just about the same week in 2011, I guess. And Bridget, what, Bridget, what was your first story? Oh, I have no clue. I mean, I, I don't remember because we, we're all such journeymen out here. And, I mean, I've worked for 27 East. I, of course, was one of the co-founders of The Independent. I've worked at The Star twice, once when I was 19 and then again in 2011 when I was however old. So Tom and I had an opportunity to, to get to know each other then and meet. And now, of course, Tom and I work together at The Independent because that's what it's like on the East End with journalism. We all share to a certain extent. I just want to throw in one thing that I was writing all along. I think it's important. I, I, I had not abandoned, even as an actor, I wrote several plays. A couple of them actually got produced and, you know, little side, little hole of the world places in New York. Uh, and, and so I was writing the whole time. Uh, I always, uh, always, always loved writing. I, I was, I was a lead singer in a punk rock band. I loved writing lyrics. What was the name of the band? The name of the band was, um, oh God, how can I, the Detours. We were the Detours. We were not the A tour. We were not the B tour. We were the detours. Yeah, you had to, you had to, you had to take a detour to get to the name. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we were the detours, and I was the worst lead singer in the world. But I loved writing lyrics. And but isn't the whole point? Isn't the whole point of punk though? Like legitimately, the whole point of punk is to not follow any uh, path that's been followed. So you were actually the best. <laughs> You were the best singer. I was. Yeah. I, we even did a tour. We did a tour. We we went to Toronto. The detour. The detour. <laughs> it was the first and last of the detour. Right, you, you, you meant to go to Miami, but you ended up in Toronto. We ended up so. in Toronto, and I'll never forget. I said something on the stage, and I've never felt it was such a great but horrible feeling, but great to have experienced it. I said something that turned the audience off so much. I could feel them literally. <laughs> Pull back. I was like, wow, there's a lot of power up here. And, and, that's, and that's Canadians who are the nicest people on the planet. <laughs> you must be really bad. And you do that every day at the Independent. So, you know. <laughs> yes, I've, I've mastered that since, that, that, so, that talent, yes. Let's talk for a second about your writing before, we again, we get to the pandemic, which is you, you did publish a children's book about, uh, is it called The, Nut, a Nutcrack, the Nutcracker in Harlem? What is yes. the exact Yes. Um, that that actually it's funny that that came about um I, it was years ago uh my wife was working with uh, as an agent with a dancer and we thought well let's do something for the stage let's do a treatment for the stage uh let's take the nutcracker and and let's set it uh in harlem um and so i wrote this treatment up and we were talking with uh, a literary agent, um, and she, um, uh, Jennifer Unter, and uh, Jennifer uh, suggested that we try selling it as a book. And so we said, well, okay, let's get some who should write it. And she said, well, why doesn't Tom write it? So I wrote it, and Jennifer sold it. And um, 
And that was uh, quite a while ago. And then nothing happened. I mean, that happens in the book publishing industry. You know, you sell a book and it just sits there. Uh, this was a children's book. Um, and then uh, 19, jeez, oh, yeah, that's a while ago. Uh, 2000, I think it was 2011, 2000, no, it was about 2013, I, I guess it was. Uh, I got a call from Jennifer had left her agency. Another agent was, was, uh, was there and he called me and he said, uh, there, there's an editor at Harper Collins and that's who she'd sold the book to. There's an editor at Harper Collins who, uh, who's interested, uh, in talking to you about the book. Um, she wants to know if you do a rewrite. So of course the answer is yes, I'll do a rewrite. And, well, it's, um, it's a picture book. I mean, it's like a lovely kind of for younger children. Yes. Picture book. And, yeah, uh, I have a question. Like, like, I, so it's it's a it's a Nutcracker in Harlem. Is it? Uh, yes. Is it an Afrocentric story? No, well, no. I mean, it's just um, there. There was a the reason why the the editor was interested uh, in talking to me was um, there. Uh, there was a uh, there was a wonderful, incredibly talented African American. Um, illustrator uh, named James Ransom, and he had been looking for a Nutcracker type book. And so when they saw this, they said, "Well, this is perfect." So we, you know, she put us together, uh, and um, uh, it, and uh, it's set in the Harlem Renaissance. Oh, in the twenties. Yeah, and 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 uh, uh, the um, uh, Drosselmeyer is is a character loosely based on Cab Calloway. It was a lot of fun. It was a Bank Street College of Education best children's book of the year. Yes, it was. It got really good reviews. It got a nice mention in the Wall Street Journal, a nice uh, write up in the Times. Uh, it was uh, it was very cool. It was very wonderful. I have another book, uh, which frankly is just right now. I feel like you know we're all waiting, you know. Um, um, but I have a, a, a new book. Um, uh, that um, is with uh, with my agent and um, another kids book. Yes, another uh, a children's book. This is called Bunky and the Butterfly, and Bunky is is a pussy cat, and uh, Bunky makes uh, friends with a caterpillar named Butter, and Butter isn't really sure that she wants to become a butterfly, and uh, I'm not going to tell you the ending. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's going to be transformative. Yes, it's very very well said. We only have about fifteen. That's very funny. I'm sorry, I said that. We okay. only have about fifteen minutes left, so we're going to take another break. And when we come back, we really are going to get into the comparison, which is what you've been writing about of the 1918, you know, Spanish flu, and you'll tell us about that and uh, and how it compares to today, because there are eerie similarities to the way it's. So you're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sakamu. And we're speaking with Tom McMorrow. We are going to be right back after this. You're listening to Sundays on the East End here with Bridget Leroy. Alex Sakalou. Alex Sakalou, my prom date. And we're speaking with uh, Tom McMorrow from The Independent. And uh, we've been talking about the census. We've been talking about your children's books. Now we're going to get into the, the dark, the dark, the dank meme side. The dark side. Yeah, the dark side of, of this. 
And uh, you've been writing this incredible, really, uh, I, I've just found it really, I, I want to say the word atrocious, but it's not about your writing. Although I will sometimes say that you do write atrocious. So. <laughs> I do, I so, admit it. In this particular case, it, it just the similarities between what happened in 1918 and what's happening in 2020 are quite astounding as far as how uh, pandemics are handled. Can you elaborate a bit? Yes, I, I, the 1918, and and you're absolutely right. And, and the, the sad thing is, we learned nothing from 1918. Nothing. It was a long time ago. I mean, there's no one. That doesn't matter. <laughs> it's like it, it's like a storm of the century happens every century. Okay, so you have to prepare for the storm of the century, not for the little storm. Right. So in 1918, there's a you know there's a lot of. Uh, no one's really sure where the disease came into the human race. Well, I, I know, I know that it is. It did not come from Spain. No, that's so correct. That's one of the misnomers of the Spanish flu. And if I remember correctly, it, it was it was named the Spanish flu because the Spanish newspapers were reporting on it before anybody else. Well, the reason why they were reporting on, it, and this is the important thing about 1918, was that the world was at war, but Spain wasn't in the war. So Spain oh, was not go. censored. Uh, the United mm-hmm. States, the president of the United States was Woodrow Wilson. And Woodrow Wilson and Michael Beschloss said this recently. I mean, it was disgraceful. It was disgraceful what Woodrow Wilson did to the American people. They, we Who's were, worse, him or Trump? That's a very tough. That's, that's a very tough thing. No, I'm serious. I'm not going to no, be in I'm sushi. Not, I, I'm not. I, 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 I I think if you throw uh, uh, de Blasio in with Trump, those two would be worse than Wilson, but it's a, it's a tough call. Wilson, Wilson did not make one speech about the disease, despite the fact that 675,000 Americans died. More American troops died here in America, here in America, from the disease and got killed in the battle, in the war. Uh, you know, so so the, the the disease, and and the thing is, that I've been focused on New York and the East End, but this past week I I brought out something that the New York Times had reported. I, I rely a lot on the New York Times archives; they are um, invaluable. And anybody, if you're an online subscriber. Uh, or if you're not, you should be an online subscriber to the Times, and you can go back and look at those archives. They're amazing. So what? So, so six hundred seventy-five thousand people died. That was kind of the end game. How long the flu lasted? About what? Three months? Was there a second wave? No, no there, there, there were three, three, three waves. Yeah. Yes, there were three waves initially. Uh, and I, what I'm coming to realize now, as I'm working on it, is that there was an initial first wave. Uh, we know that there was an outbreak in Fort Riley in Kansas in early March. Um, um, Beschloss had warned. I'm sorry, 1918. Yes, I'm sorry. So uh, there was that early outbreak, and and Woodrow Wilson, according to Beschloss, had been warned that if he ships troops to Europe, they will take the disease with them. Now I don't know if it's true that the disease did not, you know, started there or here, but the disease did spread throughout Europe and did spread through the United States. It appears to me that the disease was all over by the time you get to, and all over, I mean all over, the, you know, spread across the country in pockets by the time we get to September uh, of 1918. And then you get to October, and October was the most gruesome 
month in the history of this nation in terms of disease. It, it was horrendous. Of 1918. Of 1918. And, uh, so does that, does, that, does that scare you for this coming October? Yes. And here's what really scares me. What, what really, um, really is frightening me is that you had this first wave back then, and then the disease seemed to just sit there. It just sat there. It didn't do anything. It sat there. And all of a sudden, you get to September, and then you go into October, and it explodes across the country. It's not like just New York or Boston. Mm -hmm. There was no hot spot. It was this massive explosion of this disease. Army bases, 5,000 men died in American army bases in the States across the country in one week in October. I mean, the, the numbers are, are just staggering. And so that is my fear. That is my, my, my dark fear about what's going on now. In retrospect, what do you think w was missed? What can we do differently? Well, it's interesting that we were in a war and we had this pandemic. And the war is very important um, it, it, historically. And think of it in the, these terms. In the, we fought a civil war. We, we started off talking about the census. And, and, and so this is so wonderful. You see, we've gone full circle. We, we fought a civil war. Um, uh, and in that civil war, each state mustered their own army. So you had all these different states with all these different armies. Well, you go in to fight a world war. And world, by the time we get to World War I, the U.S. has figured out how to fight wars because we used to do it all the time and we still do. You don't have all these states sending all their armies. You have one army. You have one person in charge. That's how you win a war. Um, you have a bunch of armies. That's how you lose a war. We learned how to fight wars. We did not learn how to fight pandemics. We had the lesson right there in 1918. We did not learn the lesson. You must, you must have centralized power. You must have one person calling the shots you know, dealing with this crisis. Right, right. But you talk about, right, you know, what's so funny, man, is like, you know, and I think this is the history of America. Um, and I, I'm going to butcher the, the Mark Twain line of how Americans always, always do the right thing after exhausting doing the wrong thing. You know, <laughs> I think that's um, good enough. <laughs> yeah, something like that, right? But, but going back to the Constitution, you know, in uh, 1787, you know, the, the, the compromises that were made at the very at beginning of what becomes our country's laws um, are really one, you know, like the whole banking uh, conversation of, of uh, is that, you know, central government versus state government. Right. And we've never quite gotten it um, cohesive. It, 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 but I, I, what in my opinion, um, when the central government acts strongly and when the central government acts with the power that it does hold, uh, America seems to flourish. So, right. I think that if, if, if the United States had taken action immediately, had recognized that, but, but we're not set up for that. We're just not set up for that. We're talking about states' rights and every state has to do this and they, let's leave it to the governors. And no. You're fighting something that is bigger than you are. And this pandemic, and we did not learn that lesson from 1918. Right. And it does not look like we're learning a lesson now. That's the sad truth. And, and so I, I pray to God that we do not have 
a second monster wave because a second monster wave, we will not cope. We just won't cope. That's a nice, isn't that a happy yeah, um, of summer. Well, enjoy, enjoy the eye of the storm, everybody. We're all going to die. Um, but you know what? You're born with nothing, you die with nothing. What are you left with? You lose nothing. Right? We do have to kind of bring it, bring it home now, guys. And uh, Tom, I mean, talk about, you know, you now are pretty much a full-time East End resident. I mean, how, you know, let's, let's, we only have a few more minutes, but talk about. What's your well, favorite ice cream out here? What's your favorite ice cream out here? And don't say John. I love John. But we do go back and forth will, to Manhattan. I will drive out to Montauk just to get some John's ice cream. And, and I will say, by the way, what, what you said at the, uh, at the very beginning, Alec, uh, was uh, about going to Manhattan, because my wife and I have an apartment in Manhattan. Mm. And, and so we go back and forth. And um, uh, I drove in uh, last week, and I drove in a few weeks before that, and I've been driving in over the, uh, since this began. And uh, it, is, uh, it is surreal, is the yeah. only word I can I can I can use I, I it's you know it's just yeah. surreal to I, I mean, to I mean like legitimately I you know I've had like the 92nd Van Damme Street to the 59th Street Bridge yes. at, at Bridge where I'm like wait a second I'm like zipping through Van Damme like that's not happening we're we're in Chelsea and so uh, mm. I come out of the tunnel I would never think of taking 35th Street across town I just go right across town on 35th Street. And thank God, Rob, thank God uh, Robert Moses didn't uh, get his way. Yes, you're absolutely right. right you're absolutely right. <laughs> that's another uh, uh, government crook, but that's a different story. That is a different story. And we'll have to have you on again because we've only barely touched on so much. We've discussed the census. We've discussed your own personal journey and your family and, of course, the, com the comparisons between the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and today. And uh, Tom, it's been really fantastic to have you, even though I talk to you all the time at The Independent. It's been great having you on as a guest. And, and uh, I just uh, want to say uh, real fast, my2020census.gov. If you haven't done your census yet, please do it. We are way behind on the East End. We, we Right. And perhaps Again, and I'll reiterate, the pivot that we might be having in the American experiment is that information and data saves lives, yes. and, it, it, and it makes our government work better. So please, everybody, do the census. All right. So you've been listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And Alec, uh, do you want to take us out with some brilliant little piece of whatever you usually absolutely, do. Absolutely. Um, ubi ex horiendam es pus. What is that from Harry Potter? No, where there is pus, it must be drained. It's, it's a little Latin. And I think that we all need to kind of clean out the dirt, clean out the pus and, and, and heal. And, uh, you know, listen to, listen to, to, to both the, the experts, listen to science, listen to math. That is going to be, the way we protect ourselves and have enjoy the summer have fun this weekend uh don't worry about the traffic out here don't worry about anything we're all in this together everybody so uh be well and stay well